0: beginning verse 17. Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Lord, we ask that you would be pleased with our worship tonight. We pray that you would give us strength to have our minds focused upon you so that as we hear your truth and receive from your word, that our hearts would soar with the truth that we hear and be excited about the things that are revealed to us here in your word. We pray that our faith would be strengthened, and as we read about the faith of these blessed saints of old, that we would find ourselves in this same type of communion and fellowship with you that of being people who live by faith and not by sight. And so we ask that you would take these very words that we consider tonight, these stories about men of old and that we would see you contained in them and that as you dealt with our spiritual kin in the past, we would have confidence that you will deal similarly with us here today, Lord. Thank you and we... In advance, thank you for what you will do in us and with us tonight from the hearing of your word. In your name we pray, amen. Well, honestly, this is a bit of an unfortunate place to be picking up the story. We've been in Hebrews chapter 11 for quite a while and then have taken this, for us, a lengthy break from the text. So to come back to it, we, it, helps, it helped me in thinking through this. Why in the world is he saying this here in the middle of this text to be reminded of why this chapter 11 is here at all? These poor Christians who were struggling under much persecution, if you'll remember, we saw in chapter 10, that there was all kinds of things happening to them. They were being ridiculed. They endured a hard struggle and suffering. Verse 23 of chapter 10, pardon, 33 says, they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. I was speaking with, a fellow at Thanksgiving, and he is Muslim, and he was telling me about a practice that they have in their country, and he was telling me that it's something that you just don't want to have happen to you, and that's namely being shunned. Basically, you're cut off from all of society. You can't go shopping anymore. This still happens today, but especially back in their day. You can't go to the store. You can't go purchase gas for your donkey or whatever. Uh, (laughs) you, you You just can't function in society in any normal way. You are so cut off, you basically are removed. And if you're going to survive, you either need to reconcile or move somewhere else completely removed from the place that you're in. This is what they're talking about here. When the writer of Hebrews says being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, it isn't just like they're calling you some bad names. But it's being exposed for being a Christian. And now that secret is out in the open. And the people who know you're a Christian are going to treat you, at least in their minds, like the cast off that you are. You have abandoned society's norms, so therefore society will abandon you. Well, even further, they had compassion on some people who had been thrown into prison. And in doing that, in having compassion on them, going and providing for them, helping them out, you were again exposing yourself that you were in fact a Christian as well. And then they also accepted joyfully, the plundering of their property, because they knew that they had themselves a better possession and abiding one. Now, while he's commending certain of this, certain people of this group for enduring such persecution, there was many of these people who, because of this heavy weight of persecution had just abandoned the faith and had walked away and because these are Jewish Christians that he's writing to we know the story they were living as Christians it had become so incredibly difficult that they said you know what it was way easier back when I was just a Jew instead of a Jewish Christian I will go back to that. And so they were leaving the church, going back to their Judaism, going back to the old covenant, the old way of doing things, the old way of following the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews, remember, over and over and over and over and over again, he is, in many different ways, grabbing them by their shirt collar and saying, what are you doing There's nothing better to go back to. This thing that you're enduring and going through right now is a small trial. It's a small test. It is a small part of eternity that exists out in front of you. You have God, you have Christ, you have his promises, you have the new covenant. And if you turn your back on those things and go back to the old, you are abandoning the very thing the old was pointing you forward to. And therefore you have no hope of redemption, no hope of salvation. And so when we get to chapter 11, what he's doing is he's painted this picture of warning and result and action to be taken. Warning, result, action to be taken. Many, many, many times up until this point. And now finally he's saying, look at all these people in the past who lived by faith. That's what you're being called to do. Believe the warnings, avoid what's going to come from the warning, and live in light of that warning. It's interesting that we read about grace over and over and over and over and all throughout the entire New Testament. But there is something that comes along with following the Lord. There is a set of standards and rules that we certainly do follow. And we want to follow them strictly. In fact, there's a reason why people say they do something religiously, right? It's because they do something based upon the religion that they're following. Well, you only do that if you're living by faith. And when we do it and we live by faith, it takes that burden of duty and oughtness off of us. But as we come to this particular text, what he's saying is that what we want to have in our minds focused clearly is that we believe the things that God has said in the past, fulfilled in the now for them, looking forward to the future. And if we have that right mindset and that right way of thinking, we will be able to endure all of these things that are coming against us and not throwing away the confidence that we have in the promises of God. Because that's the threat right there, isn't it? Not being confident in the promises of God. Let me ask you. In fact, let me throw this out there and you ask yourself. Self? How many times have I wrestled with throwing away my confidence? That's the question to ask yourself. Self? How many times have you genuinely, honestly wrestled with throwing away your confidence? Now, if you've been a Christian for more than, I want to say, three, six months, after that elation of the honeymoon period of getting saved kind of wears off and life sets in a little bit, you wrestle with this problem. You wrestle with your confidence. You wrestle with... This is hard. (laughs) I still sin. I still struggle. I still go through things that are extremely difficult and very painful. And life, it says here, is not a sprint. Right? This isn't a 440, the Christian life. This is a long, 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 long endurance run. It's running and running and running and running. And so, beloved, what you have need of is endurance. And so he sets up, at the end of chapter 10, this, as it were, race, right? Because he's going to pick up that imagery in chapter 12 of this race that we're running. He says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses let us therefore run the race that's set before us with endurance, laying aside all the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, right? Well, the motivation for that race is this great cloud of witnesses. You, self, all of you in this room, everybody who listens to me, has struggled with setting aside their confidence in the promises of God at one point or another. In some way, shape, or form. You've all done it. I've done it. What do we have need of? Endurance. According to chapter 12, a motivation for that endurance comes from this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. Which brings us to chapter 11. That's what it is. Some people have called this the hall of faith. A little play on a hall of fame for sports teams or whatever. I think it's more than that, though. Because these are people who, in a very real sense, we're connected with. If I were to Canton, Ohio, and go into the Football Hall of Fame, and I'm going to walk through there, I'm going to see busts of professional football players throughout the years, and I'm going to read their stats, and... Here's some of their stories. But I'm going to walk out of there and go to Chick-fil-A and get a sandwich and walk away. And the only thing that I'm really going to have from that is to be able to say to Brian when I come back, oh, dude, I saw Bart Starr's bust and it was kind of cool. Or some other people. But that's it. I have no connection with these people. They're there. They did something cool. Congratulations. And that's it. These people, though, are so different because we are intimately and uniquely connected to them because we are their brothers and sisters by faith. All of these people we are connected with. Now, as we come to Abraham here, I know it's the middle of our discussion of Abraham, but this is a very pivotal moment for Abraham it says in verse 17 by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it is said through Isaac your seed shall or your offspring shall be named and he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back now I'm going to assume a little bit that you don't know the story. It appears in Genesis chapter 22. Isaac, it says here, his only son in verse 17. Now, technically that's not true, right? Because Abraham before this had had Ishmael through one of his handmaidens, Hagar, But Ishmael was not the promised son. Ishmael was one who would be cast out of that home and have to go live and would eventually become the father of the Arab nations. Because God promised Abraham that he would create great and mighty people through Ishmael. But that's not through whom the promises were going to come. Isaac was born. Remember last time we looked at Hebrews there was that little funny thing about Abraham being 99 years old and Sarah being 90 years old when they were going to have a kid. But they believed they trusted the promises of God. And so now Abraham is tested by offering his son Isaac. What God says is you're to offer up your son, your only son Isaac. And so he takes wood. He takes Isaac. Now Isaac's not a little kid. I don't know if you've seen paintings. Every once in a while you'll see a picture of this and it's like him towing some little eight-year-old boy, you know, and that's not how it was. Isaac was a grown man at this point in history. They went together and Isaac put two and two together and said, well, there's wood, there's fire, where's the offering? And God says that he's going to provide for himself a sacrifice. Gets up there, Isaac apparently allows his, 120 year old dad to tie him up place him up upon the altar lifts up his knife to sacrifice him and only then does God speak from heaven through the angel of the Lord and says stop don't do that now I know that you are fully committed to me and by faith you've done this. So this was the test he offered up Isaac. Now The reason why this is encouraging and this is a motivation to those who are going to throw away their confidence is because Abraham had all of his confidence in Isaac. His entire hope, his entire future, the entirety of the promises of God hinged upon Isaac living, Isaac existing. None of us have endured that kind of trial and that kind of testing. The encouragement that we receive from this is that Isaac was offered up. And if Isaac dies, the promises of God fail. And you know that Genesis chapter 15 teaches us that God communicated to his people, if my promises fail, I'm not God. So God's glory, God's honor, God's name, God's holiness, God's character, God's righteousness is all at stake. It's all bound up in this man, Isaac. And yet God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So what does Abraham conclude? Verse 19 gives us commentary. He considered that God... Was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, when Abraham was on that march, Abraham considered him to be dead. Those three days it took them to journey to the mountain where he was to be sacrificed, Abram, in his mind, in wrestling with this, considered Isaac to be dead. Because he believed the word of the Lord when it came to him. He believed the word of the Lord when God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. He believed the word of the Lord when God said, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac, the promises are going to come. And he believed God when God said, go sacrifice your son, your only son to me. Now, it's interesting. It's of whom it is said through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This is an important truth. It appears another place in the New Testament as well. And incidentally, it's Romans chapter 9. Now, that chapter is a chapter that is infamous if you're on one side of the Christian world. And it's famous if you're on the other side of the Christian world. We love this chapter as Calvinists, as people who are Reformed Baptists. We come to this chapter quite frequently, and it's a source of hope and comfort for us as it should be. I remember in a church I was previously at years ago, the pastor preached through Romans, and he went 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, and just skipped right over chapter 9 and didn't preach through it. Well, We're never going to do that. (laughs) We're going to go right through to it. But here, if you're in Romans 9, it says this. Look down at verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For about this time, yeah, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only that. But also, when Rebekah had conceived by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So the point it tells us right here of including the text here is that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. So that takes us actually back to our text here because Isaac is the child of promise, not just the child of the flesh. So his encouragement to the Hebrews in bringing up this story is not just Oh, look at Abraham. He believed God's promises so much that he was even willing to kill his son. But he believed God's promises so much that he counted God's elective purposes to be true and cannot fail. That's the point. The point is the promise of election will stand. He considered God was able to raise Isaac up from the dead because God had to raise him up from the dead because God had predestined that the promises would come from him. And God is such a God of truth and such a God of his own character, his own righteousness, his own holiness, he cannot fail. And so as Abram wrestled with these truths, he came to the conclusion in his own mind that the only way that this is solved is if God raises Isaac from the dead. Okay, I'm going to do what God told me to do because God will raise him from the dead because God's promise will stand. That's confidence, you see. The encouragement to the hearers of this text is don't throw away your confidence You're trying to ration out and reason out, boy, how can I have a more easier life? How can I not experience so much pain, which is the wrong way of reasoning? The way of reasoning should be, what has God promised? I need to believe that, even if it all looks bad. Because that's exactly the way it looked. All bad, right? God told him to kill his son. God told Abraham to kill his son. That sounds all bad, right? That, it, it, to understate it, is a head scratcher. But God told him to do it, and the only way Abram could consider that this could be resolved is if God is able to raise him up from the dead. So, point. Self. Have you ever struggled with throwing away your own confidence or setting aside your own confidence? Here's the point. God's purpose will stand. Has God saved you? Has He called you? Has He chosen you? Has He elected you to be a part of His family? If that is true of you, then His promise to you is just equally as true. He will be your God and you will be His people. And despite what you might go through here on this earth, there comes the day where you will be with Him in heaven forever united with all of these people who have believed also by faith throughout all of history. We will be his people. He will be our God. And that day there will be no more weeping, no more tears, no more sorrow. And God is able to do the impossible, even saving us from our sins. Now, verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. This is an interesting story, and maybe you know this story, right? Esau was the older son. The older was supposed to be the one who received the family blessing, right? I'm an older son. This kind of hits home. I'm a redhead, so was Esau. Doggone. Uh, <laughs> But Jacob received the blessing here. Now, it says Esau, but if you look back in Genesis 27, I want you to see what took place. And you probably know the story. So while you're turning there, let me sum up. Esau was supposed to receive the blessing. Jacob was a rapscallion of a fella. And so he plotted and schemed this idea where he would put goat skin on his arms and around the tuff of his neck. So when he went into his dad. Because Esau was a hairy, hairy, hairy dude apparently. He'd walk in there. And his dad who had gone blind would feel him. And go oh yep that's Esau. If I ever felt Esau that's him. So he goes in there. Feeds him. Asks for his blessing. And Jacob. Or pardon me Isaac. Gives Jacob the blessing. He says this. In 27, verse 27. So he came near, kissed him. Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, I smell the smell of my son. It is the smell of the field that the Lord is blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth, the plenty of the grain and the wine. Let the people serve you, the nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed is everyone who curses you. Blessed will be everyone who blesses you. In doing this, he made Jacob lord over the clan. He made Jacob the recipient of the promises from Abraham to Isaac, and from Isaac, not to Esau, but to Jacob. So here, how do we see Isaac exhibiting faith? All we see is a blind guy blessing the wrong guy. How is that faithful? Well, if you look down further on, Esau, the story goes, comes back in, finds out what's happened, and is super upset, right? So Esau, verse 38, says to his father, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me also, oh my father. What is Esau tempting Isaac to do to take back his blessing right to say oh that one didn't count here let me give you another one here Esau is tempting his faith he's challenging his faith because what he's saying here is look those were just words you can say some more words to me when in Isaac's mind, what he is thinking is the covenant promises of God Almighty were given to my father Abraham, given to me, Isaac, and I am to pass them on to my son, and I just passed them on to Jacob. So the temptation that's coming is are you going to be faithful to the covenant promises of God? And what does Isaac do? He's faithful to God. He says this in verse 39. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling. Right? That was the blessing that Jacob got. The fatness of the earth. Away from the dew of high heaven. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now that's not much of a blessing, is it? Clearly a prophetic utterance, but it's even more than that. It's a denial, I believe, by God, right? We looked at Romans chapter 9 that said, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. We see that manifested there in the blessings being given. Again, you see the elective purposes of God. We see God choosing, preferring one over the other. And the exhibit of that is coming out in the faith of the people who were part of that covenant, right? Esau doesn't have faith. In fact, Esau tries to get Isaac to deny that faith. But the people who have faith are those who are a part of the covenant. So again, don't throw away your confidence as other people have, as Esau himself did. Instead, endure Believe, trust, keep on keeping on by faith. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. You might remember this story in Genesis chapter 48, right? So, Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, who became Israel, The right that was the whole point is he was the most loved son and his other brothers hated that so they sold him into slavery but everything's resolved by chapter 48 of Genesis and Jacob comes back onto the scene he sees the sons of Joseph namely Manasseh and Ephraim Manasseh is the older son Ephraim is the younger son And what Jacob does is something so interesting. He comes in and rather than blessing Joseph, he takes the two sons of Joseph and blesses them. What he's doing there is he's actually adopting them into the family. He is adopting them as his own sons. He's taking Manasseh and Ephraim and now adopting them into his family. Now, we have a doctrine of adoption, right? In fact, the 1689, interestingly enough, has a chapter on adoption. It's just one paragraph, but let me read it real quickly for you. It says, now all those who are justified, all those who by faith have been saved by God, all those who are believers in him, right? That's who we're talking about. So all y'all who believe and trust in Jesus Christ, this applies to you. God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make all the partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number. And we enjoy the liberties, the privileges of the children of God. His name has been put upon us. We receive the spirit of adoption. We have access to the throne of grace with boldness. And we have been enabled to cry out to God, Abba, Father. We are pitied. We are protected. We are provided for. We are chastened. All of this as by a father. We are never cast off. But we are sealed for that day of redemption and inherit the promises of heirs of everlasting salvation. Adoption is eternal forever. So this isn't just a throwaway thing that Jacob, or pardon, yeah, that Jacob does here when he blesses Joseph's sons. This is him saying, all of the covenantal blessings that have come from Abraham. Come to my father Isaac and have even come to me by faith. I am now giving to you the sons of Joseph. And you remember that situation. He crosses his arms and he puts his right hand on Ephraim. Left hand on Manasseh to bless the younger over the older. And Joseph comes and tries to fix his hands, right? And he says, no, 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 no. I know what I'm doing. This is the way the covenant is going to come and going to pass. And he puts his hands back right and he blesses the younger again over the older, even though they are both adopted into the family. And one of the things we see in the history of Israel is Manasseh is one of the first tribes to get squirrely, have problems, begin to throw away their confidence. Ephraim is one of the last. Ephraim is one of the stalwarts of faith. But Jacob by faith, believed the promises and the covenants of God enough that he passed them on down. And then finally, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He believed and trusted in these promises of God to the point where he gave directions for what should happen to his bones. Namely, they should be taken back to the promised land And they should be buried there. At the end of Joshua, that book that comes right before Judges, in chapter 24, it says this, "...then Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel." Now, as for the bones of Joseph, well, the people of Israel brought them up from Egypt. They buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. And it became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. Here you find that this promise has been given of land and it has been believed all throughout these generations. And to the point of even Joseph asking for his bones to be interned in his father's burial plot. So for us today, we read through this. We look at this. We struggle with this. We think through this. We we live our lives and lives that are lives of struggle. Kids. Kids. You're going to have a hard time in life. It's going to be not easy and not perfect, but you know what? God's promises are worth it. Believe and trust in him. His salvation is pure and wonderful and good and there is absolutely nothing else like it. In fact, the salvation of our souls is the greatest and cheapest of all blessings that is in existence. There is nothing else greater. For those of us who have walked a little bit with the Lord... This is a good reminder. We need this routinely to be brought back to the place that being saved and walking by faith with the living God is the chiefest and greatest of blessings that exists. The salvation of your soul by God, the adoption of you into his family is the greatest and most glorious truth. And so when we struggle with this throwing away of our confidence. When we have this need of endurance, we need to come back to the fact that there is nothing greater than being a part of the family of God, being a child of God, being one of his kids that he has adopted into his family, and now we receive all of the benefits and all of the blessings that could ever possibly be given to one of the children of God. He is good He is faithful, he is true, and he is right. Beloved, you can trust him. He is worthy of our faith. Keep on keeping on. Lord, we know that as we live, move, and like the Bible says, have our being, that there is a very real temptation to give up, abandon our faith, take it easy, rely on ourselves. But Lord, that is folly. We need you. We need you, we need you, we need you, we need you. My prayer, Lord, is that every single one of us who hears these words and reads this text would be reminded of how desperately we do need you and how glorious it is to have you as our God and our Savior. That whatever trial and temptation and struggle that we endure, it is worth it to cling on to you and to keep on keeping on with you. To lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us to live a life that is pleasing to you. So, Lord, I pray for every single one of us here. That, Lord, if there is sin that we need to be convicted of, that you would do that. Whatever it is. Whatever sins. There's so many, Lord. We could read one of those big lists here and still miss things. But, Lord we do absolutely know that we are in need of your continued forgiveness. So, Lord, I pray that you would convict us of our sins, sins that lead us to deny you, maybe in great ways, maybe in subtle ways. And then, Lord, that you would encourage us with the forgiveness that we receive from you. And that, Lord, you would then, upon that forgiveness, give us the strength to live lives that are pleasing to you, resting in your grace, trusting in your mercy, and all in all, knowing that you loved us and you will never leave us, and therefore you will never forsake us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.